0: Now, as for this morning, uh, we are going to hear uh, from the Word of God again as we continue our series uh, in the book, In the Life of Abraham, as we are going to look at what we've been calling the difficult journey of faith, because Abraham had a difficult journey of faith. But in this difficult journey, he showed us what it meant to live by faith. And that should be important for us to know. We should want to know that because as the prophet Habakkuk said uh, in in chapter two, verse four of Habakkuk, he said, the righteous shall live by, anybody? Faith. Faith. And so we should be asking the Lord this morning, Father, what can you teach us? In fact, let's pray that right now. Lord, show us what we need to learn today to be people who live by faith. Show us where we are lacking that we may confess and repent. Show us where we're excelling that we may give you the glory and the praise, Father. And Lord, for anyone here today that may not know who you are, may they understand a little bit greater today the glory that comes, the trust the peace that comes from following you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We're gonna be in Genesis 15 today. Now, compared to the action-packed events recorded last in Genesis 14, uh, when you first read it, Genesis Genesis 15 can seem a little, uh, could appear a little boring. There is no uh, invading armies, there's no huge battles, there's no villainous kidnappings, No daring nighttime rescues. It just simply records a conversation between God and Abram. But this quiet conversation, if we pay attention to it, will allow us to relate to Abram in a much greater way than when we are reading about him running nighttime raids to save his nephew Lot. Because he is gonna struggle with something that we all struggle with. And he's going to show us how to handle, how to be righteous in the way we handle this struggle. Genesis 15, verse one. After these things, the events of chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. So the chapter starts out with God coming to Abram. That was Abraham's name before God changed it. And he's instructing, he says, don't be afraid. Now, we're not quite sure why God needed to say this. Maybe it's because uh, he was afraid of revenge. Remember in the last chapter, uh, these uh, kings, these armies captured a bunch of people, took away his nephew Lot. He grabbed his men in the middle of the night, went and captured Lot, brought him back, brought these people back, quite the hero. Maybe he's worried that they're gonna come back, they're gonna hunt him down but we ultimately don't know. Whatever the reason was, God said, do not fear. And this is an encouragement that you see God give time and time throughout the Bible. Do not fear. God does not want his people to be people of fear. I believe he's speaking that to you this morning. He's been speaking that to me all this week. Do fear not fear. Now, I want to be clear when I say do not fear. I'm not talking about you should never experience fear, right? Some of you like have a fear of spiders. Anybody have a fear of spiders, right? If a spider drops out of nowhere, you probably should actually, I shouldn't admit that in front of people because other people are going to take advantage of this now, um, You know, you can't just say all the moment, I have no fear. You will jump out, you will be freaked out, right? So it's not that kind of do not fear. We're human. We are going to experience fear this side of heaven. But God rather is implying that fear should not be a guiding force in your life. You should not sit in your fear. You should not let it capture your heart. Fear should not have the last word in your life because fear can be one of the most destructive forces in your life for many reasons. But for one that I want to focus on is it can paralyze us. It can cause us to be afraid to follow God in faith. We can be afraid of what might happen. We can be afraid of failure. We can be afraid of rejection. We can be afraid of not having enough of what we think we need. So we become paralyzed. This could be whether God is calling us into something new. It could be whether we read something in the Bible that we're supposed to do. It could even be, uh, this is out of the box, but it applies so well. Some of us are hiding secret sin in our lives. You are sinning in your life. You're doing something you know God says not to do, but you do not wanna confess it to anybody because of fear. So we get paralyzed. All because we're focused on these possibilities that probably most likely will never come to pass. Or even if they come to pass, they might be the best thing for us and we not realize it. I mean, I I bet we all can think of things in our lives that we worried about, that we obsessed about, that just affected us physically and emotionally, and they never even came to pass. And that's another reason fear is so dangerous. Fear is completely irrational. It steals us away from objective logic and reason and replaces it with this subjective emotions and our subjective imagination. It was like when we were a child. You remember, were you ever afraid of having monsters under your bed or in your closet? And nobody else, thank you for somebody admitting it. Yeah, right? Now, when you look back now, it's completely irrational that you thought monsters were in your closet or under your bed until maybe you saw the, the movie Monsters Incorporated and then it makes sense, you know? But... It was irrational that your parents would stick you in a room where they knew monsters that could eat your flesh would be, right? But in the moment, it felt very real, right? Anybody ever not let their limbs stick over the edge of their bed, right? Because what was going to happen? The monster would grab it. Anybody ever tuck their sheets so tight under their mattress so the monster could not crawl in, like the sheets would stop him? We can do the same thing as adults, We can be gripped by fear like that in our lives. All that changes is the type of monster that's driving us to hide ourselves, to paralyze us from being obedient to God. There's so many effects, it damages our relationships, it damages our health, the stress levels, causes us to rob us of sleeping, leads us to anxiety and depression. It is so dangerous, fear. It's far more dangerous than we realize. So God says, do not fear. All right, amen. You're all healed of fear, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord, I will not fear no more. All right? we can say that, but we're gonna walk out the door and life is gonna happen. Life's gonna keep happening and we will be tempted to fear. We will struggle with that. So we need to be prepared for it because it's gonna happen. And I think Abram gives us the answer of how to handle fear. And it's so simplistic, it's so basic, we can read over it and completely miss it. Genesis 15, two, God says, do not fear, I am your shield. And here's what he says. He says, but, but Abram said, "O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Which was common in those days. When you didn't have your own kids, you gave it to a servant in your household, someone you trusted. All right, so how does Abram reply to God? How does he reply to this command, do not fear? He starts by asking God questions. And why does he ask God questions? because he has doubts. God said something to him and he's like, but um," he has doubts. He sees what God is saying, what God says he's gonna do. He looks his life and the math does not add up for Abraham. He's feeling doubt, right? And we all can relate to that, can't we? We all have doubts like all the time about so many areas of our lives. Doubts all day come into our lives. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk about how we handle our doubts. Because we all experience it, we all get them, we all receive them. What do we do with them? Because if they are left unchecked, if we don't know how to deal with our doubts correctly, they will contribute to us living a life, as we just talked about, of fear. Because they contribute this fear in creating a sense of vulnerability in us and a sense of insecurity in our lives. So we have to know how to handle our doubts. So far too many times, at least in my life, I'll think the doubt and I'll let it sit in there. I don't do anything with it, it just comes and it becomes a part of me. I'm betting it's the same for all of you. Now, I don't think doubting's bad. Like it's not a bad thing, it can serve extremely good purposes. It's like one of those things that it could be bad or good depending on how we respond to it. Because when we doubt, we have an opportunity to make a stronger decision or to have a stronger conviction about something. For example, and this is a very, uh, very small illustration, but the, the purpose, uh, the, it, it applies You'll, if you take it to your life. Um, I quoted at the very beginning of the sermon, um, Habakkuk 2.4. Now, when I decided, it came to my mind that I wanted to, to write this down, I was like, is that Habakkuk 2.4, 2.5, 2.6? 2, is that one? No, I think it's 2.4. Now, so I had this doubt about where the reference was. Now, if I didn't look up the reference... Then when I read it to you today, I would have not been as confident. This would have been a little voice in the back of my mind going, ah, that might not be the reference. And I may at the last minute just not quoted it because I didn't want to give you a bad reference. And someone here may need, needed very desperately to hear that verse. But, but because I chose to look it up, I could come here today and I could read that verse confidently. Because I addressed my doubt. And even if I had the reference wrong, let's say it was 2-7 or 2-8, then I could come here and I could give you that reference confidently. So in any area of your life, doubt can serve very, very good purposes for you. Because it can lead us to dig deeper into something. In fact, as a Christian, I stand here as a stronger Christian, more confident in my faith than ever. Why? Not because I never had doubts, but because I chose to dig deeper when I did have doubts. Or there were people in my life to help me address my doubts. Doubts can be very important, but they can also be very damaging. It all matters in what you do with that doubt. What do you do with your doubts? What do you do with them? Do you even pay attention to them? Or do they just come in and be an unconscious part of your life? Look what Abram does with his doubt. He takes it right to God. He doesn't fake it. He says, okay, I don't see this, God. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. He doesn't hide from God. And that's probably because of the relationship that he had with God. I mean, look at it. God responds to Abram. He does not say, How dare you question me? You pile of dust, who do you think you are to question the Almighty? No, no, that's no, not what he does. He hears Abram's doubt and then he reassures him. And then Abram, as we will go on to see, shares more doubts, and then he'll reassure him again. God literally sits down. Metaphorically speaking, right there with Abram in his doubts. And it engages him in them. And to risk sounding super cheesy this morning, God's gentleness and his patience and his grace, it it makes my heart smile. Why? Because it it teaches me that I can go to God with my doubts and he's going to meet me right there. I can go to him. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be ashamed of my doubts. I can go to Him. And when you realize that, it changes everything. What doubts do you have in your life? Have you taken them to God? because he's there to answer you. He's there to reassure you. He's there to comfort you. It's like one of the reasons that we can sing the song like we did earlier, that God is so good. Amen, church. But that's not all that he does with our doubts. Like on one hand, he's really patient with you and he meets you there and he pours his word and his spirit into you. And he meets you right like right where you're at. But he doesn't tell you that it's okay for you to stay there. He doesn't say okay to Abram. He said, all right, you're a man of doubt. I get that. It's okay. I get it. You're human. Just stay there. God refuses to let Abram stay in his doubts. He refuses anyone who follows him to stay there. Remember what Thomas with the resurrection of Jesus, Thomas was like doubting that Jesus really rose from the dead and Jesus shows up, you know, and he doesn't say to Thomas, okay, you doubt. That's, that's cool, I get it. That's just who you are. He says, no. He said, I want you to come touch my wounds. Thomas, put your hand in my wounds. See them. See that what I say is true. It's the same with us. You cannot claim To have faith in God and still sit in your doubts because God does not let you do that. You can't have it both ways. He doesn't give you an out. You either choose doubt or you choose to believe in Him. That's the choice He presents you. And I tell you why it's really important to keep this in mind because. Far too often, we are driven by our doubt. We struggle with doubts, and then they become reality for us because we don't address them, and we just kind of sit in them. And so we don't believe truths about ourselves or about God, and we don't step forward. We become paralyzed, we talked about earlier. I mean, some of you have spiritual doubts, you have religious doubts, and, and, but you just never change. You never get any better, you never work on it, you never grow, you never change. God says throughout scripture that if you do that, that's your choice and your choice alone. Because throughout scriptures, he answers every one of your doubts. Now, he does not have a doubt for every specific situation you're, you're in, like I say, he, but he has a, I mean, a promise for every specific situation that you're in, but he does have words to answer your doubt, how to approach every position, situation that you're in. And that's how God answers our doubts. He uses his promises. He makes promises right here to Abram. Look at this, Genesis 15, verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, he's talking about Eliezer, should not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. He said, look towards heaven and the number of the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be? And he, speaking of Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. Verse seven, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. How does God answer his doubts? By giving him a promise. I mean, what is a doubt? It is a feeling of uncertainty. What's the best way to shake a feeling of uncertainty? By getting certainty. What better certainty can you get in life than a promise from the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last the great I am? God says, I want you to look up. Stop looking at your wife and you and no kids. I want you to look up at the stars because this is how many offspring you will, you will see. Now, when we look up at the star, we see like not very many because of all the ambient light, but back then there was no, no street lights." You ever been out in the middle of nowhere and saw just you're blown away by the, just the billions of stars that you see up there however many there are? This was what Abram's experience was like. And notice he doesn't, God doesn't even address his concerns. Well, let me explain to you how this is gonna work, right? He doesn't answer his questions. He just says, look up. Here's what I'm gonna do. And in the same way, God makes these promises to us. He says, I want you to look up, not to the stars, but I want you to look to me and see what I'm gonna do. Matthew six, God promises to supply all our needs, not wants, but needs. Philippians one, God promised to finish the work he started in us. Romans eight, God promised that all things, good or bad, obedience, disobedience, will work out for good. Second Corinthians, God promised to comfort us in our trials. Notice he didn't say save us from our trials, but to comfort us in them. Corinthians and Romans talks about how every single one of us that put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been given spiritual gifts to serve him in his kingdom. Every single person, not everybody else but you, everybody, promise. He promises to give us wisdom, He promised the Holy Spirit to us, John 14. He promises that in James, fine, you need to confess your sins to others so that you may be healed. Finally, one of the the greatest ones is he promises an eternal life to those who trust him, John 4. These are the promises of God. These are like the conversation with Abram where God says, this is what I will do. One promise right after another. And God's promises are the answer to all our doubts. And they provide the freedom to our fear if we pay attention to them. There's an old Puritan pastor. His name was Thomas Watson. Had a very small church in England, a very famous man now, wasn't then. And he said this on August 17th, 1662. He said, trade much in the promises of God. The promises of God are great supports to your faith. Our faith lives in a promise as a fish lives in the water. The promises of God are both comforting and quickening. They are the very breast of the gospel. It says, as a child, by sucking on the breast gets strength. So faith, by sucking on the breast of the promises of God, we get strength. Strength. He said, the promises of God are like flotation devices to keep us from sinking when we come to the waters of affliction. He says, oh, trade much in the promises. Now the promises being compared to breastfeeding seems a little unusual for us, though my wife would love that being a lactation nurse, but you have to get past that and see what he's saying. See, Far too often, we will read a promise once and we be like, amen, what have you, and we will never come back to it. We won't let it sit in our heart. We won't pray on it. We won't meditate on it. But Thomas is saying, just like a baby, latches on to its mother and sucks for dear life to get all the nutrients it needs to live and to thrive and to survive. So we need to do from the promises of God. We need to sit down and read them and say, okay, if God says this, if he says this, then it means this for my life. If we did the simple exercises, a lot of our lives would change when it comes to doubts. If God says this, then it means this for my life. It's called the if-then principle. To sit on them and then to pray it in our lives, say, Lord, help me to believe this and help me to be obedient in this, to just sit there with God's word to prayerfully ponder them. It brings freedom. But then sometimes we read that freedom and the little voice comes in, a little voice that tells you how you're not loved, how you're not as good as everybody else, how you're not gifted, how you're too screwed up, how you're so far behind everyone else. And there's this little subconscious voice in you that tells you the promises of God They apply to everybody else but you. Now, if someone were to ask you, do they apply to me? You say, yes, they apply to me. But inside that doubt sits like a huge blanket over something that you covering the promises of God that you can't see them. Genesis 15, eight. But he, Abram said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Verse 11, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. I love that they left this last verse in because when I read the Bible, I always think of these big holy experiences that they have. man, they had to deal with problems like birds, and you know, like we have to deal with problems with sound going out. Like it's it was humanity. I love it. It makes it real. So once again, God starts out, Abram starts out and says, Lord, how am I gonna do this? Like, I got no kids. How am I gonna know that I'm gonna take this land? I can't take on all these armies. God says, go get me a bunch of animals and do this to them. And, and, and what was happening here is God was about to make a covenant with Abram. Now, in, written, in our written culture, we know how we all make covenants or contracts, we call them now. We get a piece of paper. We write down what we're going to do, both parties, what will happen to both parties if they don't do it. And then we sign it, right? And maybe get it notarized. Some of us do it digitally now. That is how we make a contract. But in oral Cultures, before written cultures, that's not how they did it. Instead, they had ceremonies. They literally would act out the covenant or the contract that was being made. And what they're acting out here, what God is setting up is what's called the curse of the covenant. And here's what you did. You laid these animals in half, right? I know this is gross, but you laid them in half. You took the small animals, you put them, and you create an aisleway, right? And what you would do is when you guys made the agreement, each party would walk through the animals. And what you're saying by doing that is you're saying, if I break my covenant with you, if I break my agreement with you, then may I be as these animals. May this happen to me if I don't follow through. That's what they were getting ready to do. Mark, next time you rent out an apartment, this is how you can do it, right? But John, maybe when you sell a car next time, you can just bring animals and see if that works, right? This is how they made covenants. Pretty severe, pretty vivid. Though I'm thinking they probably took their agreements much more seriously than in our culture nowadays, which seems where we seem to try to get out of anything that doesn't benefit us, right? So that's what's happening here. And so what Abram's, Betting on doing is laying out the the, the carcasses and then he's going to plan to walk through it. Because there's one thing you need to know to get to understand what we're talking about here is in those days, sometimes kings would conquer smaller towns and then they would make a covenant with the people they just conquered. Basically saying uh, the person, or they were called vassals back then, they would come to the king and they would make this covenant that they would agree to follow the king. And they would walk through the carcasses. Now the king, he would stay on his, his, in his chair and his throne because at the end, the only one really making the agreement was the vassal because the king was being generous with this person by letting them live on their lands and so forth. So they would sit there and the one person would just walk through. So that's probably what Abram thought was gonna happen. I will walk through to make a covenant between before God. But that's not what happened. And this it's so easy to read past this, but this is literally one of the most amazing things in the entire Bible. It is one of the most dramatic scenes in the entire Bible if you read it and you let it sit in. Starting in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's he's talking about when the Israelites would be slaves in Egypt. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And verse 17, this is the biggest, most important part. When the sun had gone down, it was dark and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. Now, obviously we know a flaming torch and a smoking fire pod cannot get up and go through and walk around. their inanimate objects. But in the Old Testament, fire was a reference for God. God says, here's what's going to happen. And then at the end of it, he walks through. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Abram's asleep through this. He can't get up and do this. So what is the point that God is making? He says, this is the covenant I am making. You're not a part of this. I'm going to use you for my glory, and I am going to do this for you no matter what. In your obedience, in your disobedience, this is what I will do. God's saying, it's not about you. It is about me. What confidence that would have given Abram to get up and say, God put no ifs, no ands, no buts. He's gonna do this. In the same way, when we read these promises of God and we remember what it says in Numbers 23, verse 19, that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? what would our lives look like if we believe that? When you understand the full gospel that Jesus, he didn't walk through two dead, a bunch of dead animals. He walked through death to death himself for you. And he said, the inheritance that I am giving you is based on me alone, that you just gotta believe. This is why uh, Abram is used as a illustration for what faith in God is. He believed and it was counted to him as righteous. It means he became right with God. That when we believe that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, we become right with God. And all the promises that we read about, all the inheritance, it's all based on what he will do. If there's no ifs, if there's no ands, if there's no buts, then God will do it. That means that you thinking, I am not good enough to serve God. I don't have spiritual gifts because I've done this and this and I think this and everybody knew about me. God does not care. He does not say. He says, I will give you a gift and you will use it to serve me and you will bless others. It changes. It erases that lie. All of the promises we read earlier, they're all erased when you understand it is based on God's power and his faithfulness and not you. That is where freedom in your life comes. Some of us, you grew up just believing, you getting told things about your parents, experiences that happened to you, and they defined who you are. And that is what you look to. And God said, no, 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 no. Your my definition of who you are when you put your faith in me, it is not about you. It's not about your experiences, it's not about your past, it's not about your death, it is all about me. And when you realize that, you're like, all that didn't matter anymore. It still hurts. Yeah, it affected me, but that's not who I am. That's not what I can do in the Lord because of Him. That is where freedom hits. When you you get this, this is where freedom just comes pouring down on you. And that's my prayer for all of you. That you'll get to a place where you will take these doubts when they come into your life, because that's what's going to happen when we walk out here, the doubts will start flowing in. And you won't sit in them, but you're going to take them right to God and say, God, here are my doubts. And then you're going to not just sit there in that. And this can be time and time again. You're going to go to God's word and you're going to look up his promises. And if you can't find it yourself, you're going to text your pastor or you're going to go to Google, which is not the devil, it's just a tool. And you're going to test up scriptures about such and such promise, right? And then you are going to sit in it. You're going to read it. You're going to let it infect your life and remind yourself over and over and over and over again until that is the only truth that you know. And then you're gonna say and you're gonna read it and you're gonna say, Lord, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. I don't believe the lies. I believe this. I don't care if you're sitting in a public park and you gotta yell at God, I choose to believe you. You will become adamant that you are going to choose to believe God. I had someone ask me once, how do I know if I believe God? And I said, you know that you believe God if you do what he tells you to do. Verse six, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God said, what did God say to him? Go get the heifer, go get all of these things. And he did it. We believe God when our faith is in him in such a point that we do what he tells us to do. Whether it's take a step in faith or just be obedient to his word. Like I said earlier, when we we have sin in our lives that we know we need to confess, but we're not confessing it because our doubts and our fear We know that we believe God when we say, you know what? God says, if I confess my sins, that's how I find healing, so I'm going to do it. So we take our doubts to him. We find his promises. We sit in them day after day, choosing to believe them to the point we say, God, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. And then we take the if then. If I believe this, then God's calling me to do that that we may all end up in the place. I love this, this one of my favorite quotes. This might be my new life quote right here, that we may end up in this place. Like the missionary Hudson Taylor said this. He was going a very trying time in China doing missions work. And someone asked him how he was doing and he said this, hear this. He goes, we have 25 cents and all the promises of God. Amen, church?